morning. Let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Little summary of where we have covered so far at the beginning of Acts. We're actually coming out of a, uh, a, a record that Luke had made of a couple of the apostles, Peter and John, as they were heading into the temple. There was a man uh, who was over 40 years old who had been lame since birth, uh, who had been sitting there at the temple begging for alms. And when, they had, when this healing had occurred, it, it, this caused a commotion because the man was dancing and, and praising God and walking. And uh, all this, these people came over to see what was going on. And Peter and John began to teach them. This is an opportunity to proclaim Jesus in whose name this man was healed. And they began to teach, it says, and they began to preach uh, Jesus as the Christ and his resurrection from the dead. And those uh, who had gathered to see the miracle that had occurred to this man, they uh, heard this message. Now, because so many people had begun to gather together, uh, we are told that the temple leaders came to see what happened. And um, at that time, the people were responding. There was a large group of people. It says that there were uh, about 2,000 that had um, believed in in Christ and began to uh, follow him. And so there was a lot of people gathering together and these temple leaders were going to see what was going on. And when they heard what they were teaching, they detained Peter and John and the man who had been healed till the next morning so they could deal with it. And the leaders threatened Peter and John and said, do not speak in the name of Jesus and do not uh, talk about him rising from the dead. And Peter and John were like, thanks for the warning, but we can't follow. We can only share what we have experienced, what we have seen and what we have heard. And so after further threatening by those religious leaders, um, Peter and John were released and they went back to the disciples, which is our most recent study uh, in Acts. And they reported to the rest of the disciples what these religious leaders had said. And it drove them to prayer. And it drove them to the feet of their God, of the Lord, their master, who is over all. And and they reassured themselves in who God was, placed their threats of these religious leaders before him, and experienced an, an equipping by the Holy Spirit, a power and a boldness to continue doing what God had called them to do. And uh, we're, so Luke is moving from this, this scene, and he's going to give us a little bit more of an intimate look of what was going on in the church. And we're going to see uh, how they behaved in the beginning when they were gathered together. And we're going to get... A couple of, he's going to tell us two stories, two contrasting stories to show us how Christian unity is established and what will endanger it ultimately. And Luke uses these two stories to contrast what makes for unity and what will break unity in the church. In one story, we see great power and great grace occurring, and in another, we see great fear. But Luke will use these two stories he's about to share with us to show the kindness of God, but also the severity of God at work in his church. 
This theme of unity and division is one that is, uh, you know, consistent throughout Scripture. We see in Psalm 33 that David wrote, how, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is a great thing and it pleases the Lord. But we also see Jesus himself, our Savior, praying for our unity. Is the, the unity of his disciples. In John 17, starting in verse 9, it says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Jesus desired our unity to be such that it was like his and the Father's, that closeness, that love, that care uh, for one another. And so we're going to look at this in the church, in the early church, starting in verse 32 of Acts chapter 4. Let's read together. It says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them, upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was uh, also named uh, Barnabas, was uh, by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So, earlier on we see what made for the unity of the church. We have this multitude that is described in this first few words of this verse. Now, this, at this time, this could have been roughly around 10,000 people. The first number that we were given of those who received Christ at the, at the Pentecost or were empowered by the Holy Spirit was around 3,000 people that were added to the church. And then the second number that we were given is in the account we just recalled. At the temple, we, we saw that 2,000 people were, uh, had received Christ at that time and were added to the church. Now, you're Kyle, this, how do you get 10,000 from what actually adds up to 5,000. Well, at that time, typically just the men were counted in these numbers. And so if you figure that each man, which wouldn't be too uncommon to expect that all the men there would eventually be married or had been married, we could come up with a number of around 10,000, give or take. So this is a huge multitude of people that comprise the early church. And we find what united them, first and foremost, stated in this first verse. It says, of those who believed. 
The chief unifying factor was their belief in the gospel. They had received it, they had taken it, and it had become theirs. This was their, it was their faith in Jesus that he unified them. In verse 33, we see that it was the message that they proclaimed with great boldness. The message went out. The apostles were giving uh, witness to the resurrection of Jesus. But the gospel of the risen Christ was central to the church. And it was their message and what unified them. Jesus and him alone. Now, their unity is described even further that they were of one heart and one mind. Or one soul, sorry. This flowed from their unifying gospel belief. They were, as Robertson puts it, were in harmony in thought and affection. They understood what the gospel was. They had love and compassion for one another that came from their embracing of the gospel message. This love for Jesus flowed over into their life, over into, the, into a unity of love for one another. It flowed over into a mutual care for one another. And so we see here that unity isn't something that we create, but that God establishes it and we maintain it, right? It wasn't something that they got together and said, all right, so how do we do this? No, it was their embracing of the gospel, embracing of Christ, that he did that work in and through them, and it flowed over into those around them. It's his gospel that brings us together in our minds and in our hearts. This great record of unity actually is pretty amazing if you consider 10,000 people, and we consider also what these 10,000 people were comprised of. Do you remember back in chapter 2 where it describes everyone that was there in Jerusalem at the time? They were people from every nation under heaven. Now these were Jews primarily that were coming from all of these different cultures. These were people from diverse cultures who had received Christ and believed in the risen Christ. Now, many of them who had received Jesus had stayed there. They they continued to be taught. They continued to receive instruction by the apostles. And so we could see why there was a greater need to supply. uh, There was needs that were all around them that they began to supply for and take care of each other. But this couldn't have been anything other than a work of the Holy Spirit because it was crossing all of these these cultural lines and it's embracing of one another. Things that could have uh, worked out for um, disunity were overcome by their love for Jesus and their love for the gospel. But we also see that our strongest source of unity is in our gospel identity. They knew who they were. They were learning about even more so each day who they were in Christ through the teaching of the apostles. But what, what is identity? Much is disputed about this today. Psychology today says identity is largely concerned with the question, who are you? As those who are in Christ, we have an identity that we share and one that we receive and new identity based on what Christ has done for us. 
It's defined in terms of what God does to us and the relationship he creates with us and the destiny he appoints for us. That's how the Christian identity is formed. In Christ, we are told distinctives about our new identity as Christians. And I summarize just some of them, which there's still many of them, and I put them on these slides that we're going to kind of go through. They're summarized. I would love for you to write down these scriptures, and you can go back and reread them. But our new identity as Christians, or our identity as Christians, is those who have been justified and redeemed. Those who have received the gift of eternal life. Those who are no longer in condemnation. Those who are free from the law of sin and death. Those who are loved by God. Those who are sanctified and called saints, holy ones, set apart ones. Those who were dead but have now been made alive. Those who God leads in triumph. Those who are new creations. Those who have been reconciled to God. Those who have received the promise of the Holy Spirit through faith. Those who are sons and daughters of God through faith. Those who have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Those who are God's workmanship created for good works. Those who have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. And last but not least, those forgiven by God. These are just some of the things that make up for our identity in Christ. When we know these things about ourselves, when we have internalized these things, we, we know that they are not only true for us, but for those that are a part of the church of God. Who have believed Christ and follow him too. It should shape how we view one another and how we treat one another. But when we lose sight of our Christian identity, we move further away from the countercultural, world impacting, Christ exalting unity that Luke records for us today. This is actually what Paul's warning was to the Corinthians. All of the sexual immorality that was occurring in the church, the fights and the divisions of who they were following, what teacher they were listening to and such. Paul writes to him, he goes, don't you know that you guys are the temple of the Holy Spirit? They had lost that aspect of their identity as the church. And they began to allow these sinful things in to break them apart. Knowing our identity in Christ matters so much, and it is so imperative to how unity is experienced in our midst. Now, look at how unity was experienced at this moment, at this time in the church. We see that they were a sharing church. Look at verse 32 with me. It says that neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. 
So there was this, ex- this move of extensive sharing that was occurring among the people of the church. It says, neither did anyone say. Now, this is an actual em- emphatic thing that was being said by Luke. Not even one. This was part of that oneness of heart and oneness of soul. They were unified in their care for one another. Not one person said that their own possessions were their own. That if I had a coat laying here on the the stage and somebody came and walked off with it because they needed it, it was theirs. You know, it wasn't mine anymore. That's a hard thing to grasp at times, right? But not one person said that they possessed, the things they possessed were their own. But all a person had was shared. Everyone held their possessions so loosely and their possessions didn't have a hold on them. But we see too that this was something that was a voluntary action on their part. This wasn't a commanded thing because it says neither did anyone say. It wasn't said that they were told. It says, no, this was a move of the Holy Spirit. Neither did anyone say. This was voluntary. It was not a command. Though God's word does tell us to care for the poor, those care for the needs of others. It's not that it's not a commandment, but what we see here is these uh, empowered Christians were fulfilling the word of God by the power of his spirit. They were doing what God's word said. But, you know, generosity is not... It's actually an easy thing to understand, but it's really difficult to apply, right? We don't, uh, one commentator wrote, we don't need further explanation of the concept, but we need to better apply it. So you think about some of the situations that we have in the Bible. We had the rich young ruler that came to Jesus, right? Or the rich young man who came to Jesus. What did he, he goes, what must I do to be saved? He goes, well, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Why did he, what happened? He went away sad because he had a great many possessions. So you saw an example of how his possessions have hold of him more so than his desire to have eternal life. Or think about the man who, the lawyer who wanted to debate who his neighbor was with Jesus. Remember that situation? Do you remember the the parable that came out of that? The Good Samaritan. And you see that this lawyer really wasn't concerned about about showing kindness to his neighbor and wanting to be obedient because he debated on who his neighbor actually was. And Jesus used such a contrasting, uh, stark imagery to say, hey, this person you actually hate was a better person than you. So be like him. You know, just to really mess with the guy, you know, that's not what Jesus was doing, but you know what I mean? He was trying to communicate his point. But we realize that We need God's help to be a generous people. To be sensitive to the needs of others. To be sensitive to the needs of others, we also need to be involved in their lives. And I think that as Americans, and this is where I struggle, we lead busy lives. So busy that we sometimes don't have times for others. To be involved in the lives of those in our congregation. 
But to be able to be aware of needs, we have to be present for people. We have to be involved with them. But we see that at this same time of this great unity, that there was great power that the apostles had in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. The power of the sharing within the congregation and the unity shared made way for the gospel even to be shared. This was uh, in answer to the boldness that they prayed for back in verse 31. But this also was a work that was happening within him. The assembly of believers had internalized this gospel message and it shaped how they saw themselves and their brother and sister in the Lord and they took care of one another. There was no issue back at the church that was needing to be settled among the church. There was unity. There was mutual care for one another. And nothing was hindering the gospel from going forth and being powerfully proclaimed. And we see that great grace was upon them all. Grace which speaks of God's favor. And his favor was evident among them in their sharing and generosity with one another. And their witness to the resurrection of Christ. They were doing everything that God had called them to do. And we were seeing his favor. This was a great time of flourishing in the church. And the message went out. We see some that were more affluent here in verse 34. Now, nor was there anyone among them who lacked these affluent believers that were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each one as had need. The result was not that not one person lacked. What an amazing testimony, right? Those who were more affluent, who owned these properties and houses, they sold them in order to take care of the needs of others. Now, as one commentator wrote, Luke isn't describing communism here, where that involves taking of somebody else's stuff. It's yours now. But he's talking about a group of generous people who were sensitive to the needs of others. No one went to bed hungry because they could prevent it. No one slept on the street. No one went without clothes. The members took care of one another, and the wealthy even sold property to ensure this reality. I love that. You see the spirit moving in everyone. Their needs were met. We see in that this is uh, something that the Holy Spirit prompted. This was something that the Holy Spirit had to work within those who had such possessions. And it shares the same heart as our Savior. In, in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, rich yet for your sakes he became poor, that, though, that through his poverty, that you through his poverty might become rich. And, and so there was this selling off of properties and I don't think people were necessarily selling things off to become poor. They weren't extinguishing all of their resources. But it seems as though they were selling off what they could to take care of others. There was this willingness to meet the needs. And, and all of these proceeds were given to the apostles to distribute. 
as anyone had need. And, and so they were meeting these needs as they arose. This wasn't just a, 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 you know, dumping forth of all these things and everyone just took what they needed. It was as needs arose, they were able to meet those needs. Now, uh, we have an example, a real-life example that Luke includes in here of Barnabas. What's verse 36 say? It says, And Joseph, or Joseph, as some Bibles might translate, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, we'll know him by Barnabas the whole rest of this book because obviously he was of such encouragement, they only called him by this name. And, and so it's translated son of encouragement. A Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought it, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Luke introduces Barnabas here to us. And really he does this because Barnabas is going to play a significant role in the remainder of this book um, to a certain extent. And this was the, the name that, or he was known for this example of generosity that was going on. He was an, a, a, a physical example that, Paul, uh, that Luke could give us of what was happening in this church. And, um, you know, he was, Barnabas, it means son of encouragement. And this was the name that, that the, the apostles, those he served with, those that he was brothers with, had given him. He was an encourager, one who exhorted or a comforter is, is what that word can be translated, encouragement. And, you know, if we look at uh, 1 Corinthians 14, he actually may have been exercising regularly the gift of prophecy, as it's described in 1 Corinthians 14. In the assembly of the believers, he was doing what would exhort the church and encourage them. And it makes you ask, what, what would my nickname be? You know, what would your nickname be in the church? One time, one of the guys in the Bible told me, uh, Bible study, men's Bible study called me the big toe. You know, okay, you know. I thought that was a kind of a funny one, but, but a son of encouragement, it meant that he was an encourager. It was what flowed through his life. But we also are told that he was a Levite, an interesting uh, detail to uh, share with us about Barnabas. Well, one, because he, he's Jewish, but also he's one of those the Levites were of the priesthood, the, priest, the family of the priesthood that would take care of the temple. But we're also, what this brings to mind is that a, I thought a Levite wasn't supposed to own land. Maybe some of you Bible nerds who are familiar with uh, Leviticus and, and some of those laws might recall something like that. Oh, a Levite owning land? They weren't supposed to own land. But uh, some of the commentators would say, you know, maybe this law had been avoided by owning land outside of Jerusalem. We see that uh, Barnabas was from Cyprus. So it might have been something that at, they had worked out at the time where they could own land out of there. Some said it could have been his wife's land that was sold. Not without her knowing, of course. But uh, the law uh, possibly wasn't adhered to at this time. But nonetheless, Barnabas found himself, he was, he was a, from Cyprus, but he found himself in Jerusalem 
And maybe that was his way of saying, I'm putting stakes down to where Jesus is working and where he is at. And I'm giving up what, what I had before to engage in the ministry that God has called me to today. And sometimes that might be what God is calling us to do, is to lay down some of the, the ties to our old lives to further the kingdom, to further minister into what God has called us to do. As we see, Barnabas would go on to be a partner with Paul in some of the missionary journeys. But another detail that we see here is that he was of the country of Cyprus. And that would mean that, that Barnabas was one of the Jewish cross-cultural converts. He would, have, he would have been Cyprus in all of his, or I forgot what the word was for a, a person from Cyprus, but... Um, they, he would have been raised in that culture, and, but Jewish. And so he would have been here in Jerusalem, but still having all his Cyprus kind of mentalities and ways about him, right? So we see him as somebody that was from the outside that God had, had began to use in that setting. But the land that he had, he sold and he gave to the apostles to distribute. He wasn't required to do this, but he chose to. And this displays the work of the Lord in his life. The love of God manifested in his life. The giving of what he had to help others. Not only was uh, his encouragement in words, but also in action. It flowed from his life. And may we be a people who look for ways to give generously, sacrificial, sacrificially and gladly. May the truth of the gospel, who we are in Christ, the grace that we have received from God, make us Barnabas-like people. And may his generosity lead to a greater depth of unity among us. Now, I praise God for the generosity that I have seen and experienced among our fellowship. I think the Lord has allowed me to see a few things as I've gone into this section to see and even praise God on your behalf, seeing how you care for one another. To see how those that are in need, the Lord is supplying those needs through the other brothers and sisters. And they don't need to have their name written on a plaque. Their reward is with the Lord. To see this fellowship and this care for one another overflowing Regularly in our fellowship is such a blessing to me as one of the leaders. And to actually have been a recipient of it myself at times. So I praise God that I see that work. But Luke will continue his, his telling of the story with a contrasting one. And this next part, Luke... In, the beginning of chapter 5, it starts with a but, which tells us two things that, well, it reminds us of two things. One, that Luke wasn't done talking about what he was talking about when they decided to put chapter 5 in here. That there were no chapter and verse divisions in the original text. So we don't want to just stop here or we might miss what is going on. This unity and sharing was such a powerful work of God and his people. We should expect and know that the enemy would be active 
in an attempt to disrupt it. Luke gives the truth about what happened. He doesn't try to disguise it or hide this really um, sad event of the church's history. He doesn't try to hide it, how sin and Satan sought to disrupt this beautiful move of God. But he tells us it. Now, what will endanger unity? Well, let's read ahead. In verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he, he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Let me, uh, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. So what do we see in dangers unity? First and foremost, it's hypocrisy. And we see that with Ananias and Sapphira, that they were determined in their deception and in their hypocrisy. It says that Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, but he kept back part of the proceeds. This, let me remind you, is not one heart, one soul kind of actions, right? But his wife was aware of the plan, and they brought a certain part now, bringing a certain part in and of itself wouldn't have been wrong. He very well could have just given a portion and it would have been fine. But he laid it at the apostles' feet. And it says that he, pre he presented this offering, just like everyone else. But his motives were off. He looked like others outwardly, but inwardly he was sinning. He had devised a sin. And we see that Ananias had determined to lie, to be hypocritical. He gave falsely, having the appearance of giving all, but he only gave a portion. But why would he do this? It's a question we would have to ask ourselves why we would even tell a lie or why we would even be concerned. Well, maybe he and his wife saw what had happened with Barnabas and in in. We're beginning to look at him and maybe the praise and, and the special name that the apostles had given to him and begin 
envious. I want to be recognized like that. Recognized for their generosity. Or they could have been more concerned about how they looked than with being honest. Because it would have been a great gift to give even if it was a portion. Why did they have to lie? Their heart was deceived. But Peter, we see in verse 3, says, uh, with discernment given by the Holy Spirit, he reveals the hidden nature that was going on within Ananias, the hidden motives. The Lord used Peter to shed light on those motives. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Peter says that this was actually something that, the, that Satan had filled his heart to do. Now that word filled, it, it speaks of a place to be filled with something. And I just began to, to see this picture, you know, of a, of a void or a place within Ananias' heart that was not filled. It should have been filled fully with the Holy Spirit. It should have been filled with love. It should have been filled with him, his understanding of who he was in Christ. It should have been filled with the things of the Lord. But instead it was left empty. And it says that Satan filled it to lie to the Holy Spirit. This has the idea of control or influence involved in it. It's the same word that's used in the command, be filled with the Spirit, in Ephesians 5.18. And so we see Ananias as influenced by Satan and not the Spirit. He joined the ranks of Judas, who was used by Satan to betray Christ to the chief priests. Ananias was a tool of Satan in an attempt to disrupt this great move of the Spirit among the unity of the church. Satan put it in his heart to keep back portion for yourself and to lie about it. His sin was not that he kept back portion, but that he lied to the Holy Spirit. He was acting and saying that he gave all. In verse 4, I like how the New Living Translation reads it. It says, the property was yours to sell or not to sell, as you wished. You had complete choice in this. And then after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. And so we see... Another instance of the heart here. We see Peter ask, why has Satan filled your heart? And then the next question, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Even though Satan had filled his heart, Ananias was responsible for his actions. He had conceived this thing. Meaning that Ananias had made this decision and resolved to do it. It's the same word in the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that we see used of Daniel in Jan Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. When he was taken to Babylon, it says that he purposed 
in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. See, the purpose of heart, I think that's what the whole began. He had no purpose of heart to serve the Lord in what he did, what he had. The battleground here was in the heart of Ananias. And where unity will be disrupted will be in the battleground of our heart. Proverbs 4, starting in verse 23, says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth, and put perverse lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead, and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet, and let your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or the left. Remove your foot from evil. Man, if Ananias would have been meditating on Proverbs, filling that hole in his heart with the word of God, there wouldn't have been a place for Satan to move. There wouldn't have been, he would have been um, proactive in making sure that he was going according to what God's word says. And we see here that it wasn't man that Ananias lied to, it was God. And within these statements is something that can easily be overlooked, but we see an affirmation of the, the deity of the Holy Spirit. He says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, and then Peter goes, you have not lied to men, but to God. Ananias thought that his secret was only between him and his wife. He didn't consider the greatness of God, that God sees all, even the motives of his heart. No one can lie to God. Lying to others is a sin against them, but it's first and foremost against God himself. But lying is a symptom of our sinful nature. And the ease at which we can do it without considering the damaging effects that it has on others is it just demonstrates the sinful nature of our humanity. Titus 1-2 tells us that it is impossible for God to lie, that it's against his, uh, his nature. And in Proverbs 6, 16, he calls his people to be people of integrity and, to, and that he despises lying. So what happens to them? It's instantaneous judgment. We see that Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And we must recognize that the judgment came from God but, and, and not from Peter. All Peter did was hold Ananias accountable through the discernment that the Holy Spirit gave him. And we see that great fear came upon all those who heard. This, this discipline was severe because it had an example. An example that was being made. It produced fear in those who heard. An astonishment and an amazement of what was going on. Achan in the Old Testament, was an example to Israel, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.6. We see these examples of how not to behave for our learning, for our purposes. 
Later, Sapphira came in and enters the scene. It says three hours later, and she didn't know what had happened to her husband. But Peter questions her to see how she will respond. And she tells the same lie that her husband did. And Peter says that they had agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. Which we see as a motive of Satan as well. Remember when Jesus was tempted by by the devil himself? In Matthew 4, Jesus responds to him, It is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. But she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And it says that great fear came upon the church and those who heard these things. And we might be tempted this morning to say, wow, that was pretty extreme punishment, right? You know, could you imagine if that happened in our midst today? I mean, that would cause some fear. It would, it would be very sobering. But the reason that the judgment on these two people seems so outrageous to some, it's really a simple concept. Few understand how serious lying really is. Peter says that the pair lied to God. And that the concept is this is pretty terrifying, right? Because how easily it is that we can we can lie or even tell half-truths. It suggests that God takes the untruths that we tell as personal offenses. Ananias and Sapphira, they went to lie to the people. But Peter says, you're not lying to man, you're lying to God. God takes it as a personal offense. When people don't value the holiness of God, they minimize sin. And when they do that, they devalue the cross. And where Jesus, this very place that Jesus traded places, the place with liars. We deserve the cross. We are all guilty of lying. We are all guilty of being the hypocrite. And it was Christ upon the cross who took our sin upon him, the punishment for our sin upon himself, to forgive us. We can only say that this this judgment here is extreme if we minimize the offense. And by minimizing the offense, the one in whom we sin against. We see that lying belittles God. God takes sin seriously. Sin against him and him is against him and him only, is what David writes in Psalm 51. But sin, it destroys the unity of his church. And we need God's grace to avoid hypocrisy and to pursue integrity. So, In looking at Ananias and Sapphira as examples, what did they need? What what is it that we need to learn from their example? Well, one, God is not mocked. In Galatians 6, 7, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Imagine if Ananias would have sowed to the Spirit. Would this have happened? Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. 
Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We can't say that God will never do that to us. That he won't take care of our sin in such a dramatic way. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. You know what else Ananias and Sapphira needed? What we need? They needed to apply the gospel. They either didn't understand it or they didn't allow it to work in their hearts. You see, the gospel sets us free from addiction to self and our stuff. It frees us from pretending because God sees everything. There's nothing to hide from him. He already knows who we are. And by the blood of Jesus Christ, he's accepted us. We are received by him. It frees us from the need of praises of other people because the only one we're concerned about is him and his recognition. It frees us from the need to lie, to steal, and to deceive because we have received all from him. And we need nothing else. It allows us to value others because we see the value that God places on them. It also allows us to be generous because God has been so generous to us in the giving of his son for us and the many blessings that are so richly poured out on us. But it also allows us to look forward to the rewards that come from God and not what we can accumulate in this life now. They needed a better understanding of the gospel of grace and their identity in Christ. And last but not least, they needed repentance. You see, there's two kinds of sins that can be seen here. We see Ananias and Sapphira who were deliberate about what they did. There was no, they they made their choice. They went and they sinned and they lied. But sometimes when we're hearing a message taught, the Lord will bring to mind something. To put his finger on something, something that we were aware of or a behavior or things that we were acting or a way that we were that we had uh, played the hypocrite towards somebody or the way that we had lied to somebody else. And it's at that point that we're given a decision, right? We can either confess and say, Lord, you're right. Forgive me. I repent of what I've done. Or we can ignore his voice And continue on as if we hadn't done it. So when the Lord brings to mind those things, we need to repent. Repentance is a change of mind. I I was operating in this way of thinking and how I was going to conduct myself. But I am turning to align myself with what you say is true, Lord. What your word says is true. I'm walking in that. When we are made aware of these personal sins, our response must be repentance. And Ananias and Sapphira are examples for us to repent while forgiveness can be found. There is a day where the Lord will return and there will be no opportunity to repent or ask for forgiveness. There will be a day when you will breathe your last and there will be no opportunity to repent or ask for forgiveness. Today is the day of salvation. So the story that we see today is going to continue on. 
It will continue with the Lord working mightily through his people and the message of the gospel extending out to the surrounding cities. We have seen the Lord protect his church from attacks within today, and we will see him continue to work even through attacks from without as persecution ramps up and the message continues to spread about the resurrected Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord, and all that you've revealed to us today. Lord, today's message is one that is soul-searching. Lord, lies and half-truths are so easily said, Lord, out of self-protection or, or just self. Lord, wanting to look better towards other people. When, Lord, you know all too well that we are just, our righteousness is as filthy rags, Lord. There's none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Lord, it's because of Jesus that we can be made new. We can have new life. Lord, you would fill us up overflowing with the Holy Spirit. Lord, that there would be no room for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Lord, in you we are so richly blessed. May we continue to embrace that, to walk in it, to understand it more and more each day to meditate upon it. Let it be our thoughts throughout the week. Lord, and let it shape how we behave towards one another, how we minister to those outside the church, Lord, how we minister to those within the church, Lord. I thank you for the work that you've done in our midst. Lord, the, the blessed generosity that I see, Lord, just from my role in the church. Lord, we praise you for your work in our midst, Lord, and we pray that you would continue to do it even more, Lord, that you would purify us, Lord, that we can be even more used by you, that there would be nothing hindering your work. Lord, in our body, Lord, in this fellowship, Lord, and we pray that for your church as a whole, Lord, throughout this world, as the enemy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, Lord, to, to divide, to break up, Lord. May your gospel go out, the good news, Lord, and may you return soon, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.